glad that you're listening to this podcast. This podcast is a ministry of the Bonners Ferry Baptist Church and of Pastor Devin Neal. All right, would you stand with me, please? We'll read verses 1 through 11, uh, beginning now in verse 1. Paul, an apostle, not of men, neither by man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. And all the brethren which are with me unto the churches of Galatia. Grace be to you and peace from God the Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins that he might deliver us from this present evil world according to the will of God and our Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I marvel that ye are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel, which is not another. But there be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. But though we, or an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. As we said before, so say I now again, If any man preach any other gospel unto you than that ye have received, let him be accursed. For do I now persuade men or God? Or do I seek to please men? For if I yet pleased men, I should not be the servant of Christ. But I certify you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached of me is not after men. Thank you. You may be seated. How many of you have ever introduce something to someone from the Bible and their immediate retort is, well, that's just a book written by men as though if it were from God, they would accept it. Nonsense. It's just an excuse. How many of you ever have come from something out of the Bible, a doctrine of the Bible, and someone says, well, that's just man's interpretation. I believe that's God's book, but that's just man's interpretation. This has been the nature of man uh, as long as man's been around. I suppose we see it recorded in Scripture specifically concerning the Lord Jesus Christ. When he came to earth, there was a debate. Was he from heaven or was he of God? And he was quizzed and challenged. Who has given you the authority to do what you're doing? And uh, he asked the the Pharisees a very interesting question in response, John's baptism of heaven or of men? Well, we cannot say, they said. Uh, The point I'm trying to make is there's been a debate over what is from God, what is from man. And what Paul is declaring here is he said, I preached a gospel to you, the gospel to you. There's only one. You believed it, and now you're believing something different than what I preached to you. And know that you're not just getting different versions of the gospel from different men. That's what he's dealing with. The message he had preached, some false teachers came along behind him and said, no, 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 it's actually like this. And they had soon, soon from being converted, soon removed to say, we don't believe what Paul preached to us anymore. Now we believe this. We've we've shifted over here. And so what we find is in the scripture, uh, there is but one gospel. Hold your, hold your finger in Galatians and let's turn just one book over to Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. I'm going to read some text to you just to lay, lay down some groundwork as far as, I'm getting just a, a, maybe a smidge ahead of myself, but this is the heart of the message tonight. We'll deal with Paul's greeting briefly Uh, But uh, the heart of our message is in verses 6 to 11 this evening. So Ephesians chapter 4 verse 1, uh, Paul says, I therefore the prisoner of the Lord beseech you that ye walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called with all lowliness and meekness with longsuffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body uh, and one spirit, even as ye are called in one hope of your calling, One Lord, what's it say next? One faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. So he goes down a number of things. He's telling them to endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. He said, 
when it comes to these things, there's not a variety of spirits. There's one Holy Spirit. There's one body. Uh, and that's speaking of the spiritual sense, the spiritual body of the Lord Jesus Christ, that he is, uh, I, you read your Bible from Ephesians, he's assembling that body in heaven. We are seated at the right hand of the throne of God. There's one body, one spirit, even as you are called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. May I say, Satan, being the author of confusion, being the author of corruption, uh, has corrupted everything that God has given, including the gospel. He has sought to what the Bible calls here, pervert it. And so now, with, with having read Ephesians 4, turn with me now over to 1 Corinthians 1, if you would. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And these things need to ground our minds as far as what our objective is if we're not careful in an age of pluralism where we're told many things that are opposing each other can be true at the same time. Pluralism religiously meaning all faiths are good. We need to accept the Muslim faith and the Hindu faith. and We need to accept all faiths that ultimately they're all based in the same thing, meaning we need to unite with all faiths. That's pluralism. Got its start in ecumenicism that said everything that claims to be a Christian needs to be accepted as such. So we don't need to parse over disagreement over the Bible or salvation or the deity of Christ necessarily. We need to find some common ground as Christians, some basic things that we believe on and hold together and abandon everything else for the sake of unity. That's taking a Bible truth. Do we need unity? We do. The Bible says we're to endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Ephesians chapter 4 goes on to say we are to come together in the unity of the faith. The faith of Jesus Christ will unify us. May I say this? The Lord doesn't have multiple viewpoints tonight. The Lord, how many of us believe the Lord actually holds a, a, a mind, he has a mind about Scripture, then it's his mind we need. We don't need to get a conglomeration of what all the different people believe about the Bible and say, well, we'll do the best we can, pick the one we like or the one we think seems closest to the truth. You know what Christians need to do? You need the mind of the Lord. You need the mind of the Lord. If this, Listen here. If this Bible is not infallible and it's not preserved, you need to know that. If God's position is that his, his word is stuck back in the original languages, then by all means hold that position. Most people have not taken the time to find out if that's what the Bible teaches. That's just the popular position, so we grab it. But we need to know what the Bible says. You know why I don't believe that God's word is lost back in the original languages three or four generations ago or ten generations ago? Because I can't find one stitch of evidence in my Bible that that's what God thinks. Amen? I don't find it. What I do find is that he's promised to preserve his words to every generation. So that's the position I want to hold. That's his mind. When it comes to the gospel, there are not multiple gospels. There's only one. That's what Paul's going to say. You've been soon removed to another gospel, but it's not another. There's actually What he's saying is it's different than the one I preached to you, but it's not legitimate as a different gospel. So 1 Corinthians chapter 1, uh, Paul says this, the Spirit of God is giving him these words, of course. Uh, verse 10, Now I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that ye all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that ye be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment meaning you need to come to the same conclusions about truth, not the same personalities, not the same giftings, not the same background. There are diversities of gifts. There's diversity of administrations. But when it comes to doctrine, we're supposed to have the same judgment. Amen? We're all on the same, same track here. So if we're to have the same mind, we're to have the same judgment, how can we do uh, such a thing? The Bible tells us that we have the mind of Christ. Uh, I believe that would be, I didn't write it down. Turn me to 2 Corinthians, if you would. I believe that's chapter 1 or chapter 2. And if I'm wrong, we'll just scoot right along here. Um, that may be back where I, would just, where I just was at in 1 Corinthians. Pardon me, please. 
Yeah, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, so not 2 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Uh, the Bible says in verse 11, For what man knoweth the things of a man, save the spirit of man which is in him? Even so the things of God knoweth no man but the spirit of God. So who knows the things of God? God does. The spirit of God does. All right, and so who knoweth the things uh, of God uh, but the spirit of God? Verse 12, Now we have received... Not the spirit, little s, spirit of the world, but the spirit which is of God, that we might know the things that are freely given to us of God, which things we all also we speak, not in the words which man's wisdom teacheth, but which the Holy Ghost teacheth, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. But the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned, meaning the man who doesn't have the Spirit of God cannot discern the things that God's telling him because he doesn't have the Holy Spirit of God. These things are spiritually discerned. Verse 15, but he that is spiritual judgeth. Now, what do we just read in 1 Corinthians? We're all to have the same mind, the same judgment. How many of us know what a judgment is? Let let me try to, um, let's take an American mindset of Christianity into a courtroom. We're going to sit on a jury we're going to sit for days and hear evidence on a crime. And when it's time to render a verdict, what we're going to say is, well, Your Honor, we've heard evidence that the, the person is guilty. Well, yes, you have. And we've heard evidence that the person is not guilty. And we see value in both of these evidences. And our judgment is that he could be guilty, but he may not be. And your honor is going to say, go back. Or I'm going to get a jury that does its job. You have to render a verdict. Many a child of God says, I don't, I don't want to make a judgment. Meaning, you're going to make a call. You're going to say, I have determined and discerned this is the truth. We wish to walk in limbo. We wish to be indecisive. The Bible calls that being double-minded. And so, but the Bible says, he that is spiritual judgeth all things, yet he himself is judged. That word judged means discerned uh, of no man. Verse 16, for who hath known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Wait, 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 read that again. We have what? We have the mind of Christ. Our job tonight is to get the mind of Christ. You take any issue. This is what the spiritual person does. We don't test all the minds in the world. And may I say this? The mind of Christ, what's established in 1 Corinthians 2, is that the mind of Christ is, a, is imparted spiritually, meaning we're not talking about an intellectual exercise. We're not talking about just pouring over Scripture until you come up with a, a, a position we're talking about literally getting the Holy Spirit of God through a submitted will and heart to open the Scripture and teach you His mind from the Bible. I want to tell you something. Once you, once you start preaching and teaching, you realize how many variant views there are on every subject under the sun. I mean, I've had people defend the sin of homosexuality saying the Bible's okay with it because of the relationship of David and Jonathan. I've had people defend drinking alcohol. I've had uh, inmates multiple times tell me, herb for the service of man, taking marijuana is not only okay, it's good. And we can just go on down the line. I've heard adultery defended trying to use the Bible. When you want to use the Bible to build a position intellectually, you can do that, but that's not what we're called to do. I've heard people today, tonight, there are people all over the map on the Bible. Some believe that it's absolutely a man's book, that it's a fraud used to control the masses of the world. I would say if that's its intent, it has done a very poor job. Others believe that it is 80% good and 80% pure. Others would say it's the infallible word of God in the originals. Others would say we have it right here. God did a miracle and gave us a Bible that's perfect in English language. We're grateful for that. Others would say that and run to the fanaticism side. I mean, there's people all over the map. So where do you and I land? How can you say we're sure that this is we have God's mind on salvation, but that's all he gave us his mind on? No, we need the mind of Christ. 
You know what Paul is saying in Galatians chapter 1? I preached to you a gospel, but it wasn't mine. Christ gave me what I preached to you. So you can't cherry pick and say, well, that's your brand of the gospel. No, there's not variant brands. And so I want to read all these verses at the onset because that's really how Galatians is introduced to us, even in Paul's introduction. If you're taking notes, our first point is Paul's dutiful greeting in verses 1 through 5. Paul takes time in each epistle to greet his, 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 uh, the folks he's writing to. And each one, it's easy to read through Paul's greetings and just kind of blow by them. But he's going to set the tone right off the, right off the bat when he greets the Galatians. And he says this in verse 1, Paul an apostle, and then in parentheses you're going to read, not of men, neither by man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. You know he's going to say? It was not man who selected me for the ministry, including myself. Jesus Christ, according to the will of God the Father, had a will for my life. He's the one that saved me. He's the one that picked me for doing the work of the ministry I'm doing. So I'm not just some man who put himself into the ministry, not called of men, called of God. And so he's establishing the authority for what he's about to say. So Paul's dutiful greeting there in verses 1 and 2. Then he says in verse 2, And all the brethren which are with me unto the churches of Galatia. I think it's important just to note verse 2. Uh, that he's not just writing to a church in Galatia. He is writing to all the churches of Galatia. It would be like writing an epistle to the churches of Idaho or the churches of, you know, Montana. There was an entire region and all the churches that were there had come under the influence that he's going to be dealing with in the book of Galatians. And so you can read about the same kind of influence. We'll get into more of that as we get into the book. In Acts chapter 15, the church at Jerusalem had had to deal with it. The church at Antioch would have to deal with it. And it was this matter of adding the works of the law to faith in Christ in order to retain or to have salvation. And you'll see that later in the book. He doesn't deal with that, so we're going to deal with it tonight, what the the actual specific content was. But in verses 1 through 5, he's opening up and he says, It's I, the Paul the Apostle, and all the brethren that are with me. It's interesting that he would note that. It seems you can hear that Paul perhaps had been accused of being rogue, of kind of uh, being a a lone ranger. You're the only guy that believes this. You're the only guy. We know once you get to Romans chapter 6, he had been accused of abusing the grace of God. Once he got back to Jerusalem, they had accused him of trying to undo the law of Moses, of trying to undercut the scripture and so forth. And so then, uh, you can hear here, he's saying, it's I, number one, I'm called of God. Number one, all the brethren that are with me, we are unified in what I'm writing to you. This is not my opinion. I'm called of God to be an apostle, and these brethren that are with me, we're all writing to all you churches of Galatia. Number three, he says, grace to you and peace from God the Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ. This tells us his intent. He said, I'm writing so that you might have the blessing of God, grace unto you, and peace. So Paul, is though he's going to say some hard words to them, though he's going to say some difficult things, though his letter is corrective in its nature, the intent behind it is, the things I'm going to write to you, the intent is that God's blessing may be on you and that you may have peace from that comes from God and from our Lord Jesus Christ. And he reminds us of just who Jesus Christ is. He's going to give them the gospel again in his introduction. Notice this, verse 4. Who gave himself for our sins. May I ask you something tonight? Is the good news of Jesus Christ, hey, here's what you have to do for him, or here's what he's done for you. It's what he did for us. He gave himself for us. Who gave himself for our what? Sins. He didn't give them for his own sins, did he? I would encourage you in a good Bible study, study that phrase, who gave himself. Titus 2 uses it. Now the grace of God hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people zealous of good works. That phrase is used over and over and over that Christ gave himself for us. That's the gospel, what Christ has done for us. We'll see that again in a few minutes in 1 Corinthians 15. It says, who gave himself for our sins, why? That he might deliver us from this present evil world 
according to the will of God and our Father. God was willing to deliver sinners from this present evil world. He sent Christ into the world to die for our sins. You know what he does? He's basically saying John 3.16 all over again. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Paul is saying, I'm just going to, while I'm introducing this letter, let me remind you of what you said you believed. Who gave himself for us that he might, uh, that he, that he might deliver us from this present evil world according to the will of God and our Father. That reminds us it is the will of God to save sinners. He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance, as 2 Peter 3, 9 says. Verse 5, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. He's going to remind them again. When the gospel is preached, who gets the glory? God. Lest any man should boast. I don't know if you know yourself, like I think I know myself, when given what I think is reasonable reason to boast, you know what my flesh does? Unless there was the Holy Spirit of God there, just boast. There will be no boasting in heaven. None. No one in heaven will say, man, man, hey, pastor so-and-so, did you ever hear how much I did for the Lord while I was on earth? I mean, you, you wouldn't believe. I mean, hey, I ran more than you. Pfft. No boasting in glory. All glory to God. Amen. Go with me real quick. Just while we're in this introduction, Paul's reminding them the gospel of Jesus Christ gives glory to God, not glory to man. Can you see that in the introduction? I'm called of God, not of man. I'm preaching a gospel not about what men do for God, but what about God has done for men. And I'm telling you what brings glory to God, not what brings glory to men. Now, if we would, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, the Bible says concerning our salvation, concerning what the Lord's done for us, he says in verse 26, For you see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. And base things of the world and things which are despised hath God chosen, yea, and things which are not to bring to naught things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. But of him are ye in Christ Jesus. Meaning, God's the one who came up with the idea of saving man, not man. Man didn't say, oh, we are so bad We need a Savior. Let's ask God to send us a Savior. No, no man seeketh after God. Man was content to thumb his nose at God and tell God to leave us alone once we were thrust into sin by Adam's sin. It's God who said, I want to save you. Therefore, he sent his Son into the world of his own will. No man said, God, we need you to save us. Now, would you do something about this? God said, you need saving, and I've done something about it. Check your Bible. That's what the Bible says. Amen. So, but of him are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us. Here's what Christ Jesus has made unto us. Wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. You have all of that because Jesus Christ is your Savior. When you took him as your Savior by faith, he gave you his wisdom. And he gave you righteousness. And he sanctified you. You know why God's willing to accept you? Not because of you, but because of who's in you and who's in me. It's the presence of Christ that sanctifies us. It's his washing. It's his death. It's his blood. It's his intercessory work in heaven. It's Christ that makes us acceptable to God. And so he's made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption that according as it is written, and that's in the book of Jeremiah, he that glorieth, let him glory in who? The Lord. The Lord is the one who gets the glory. And so Paul reminds the Galatians, number one, I didn't call myself and I wasn't called of another man into the ministry. I was called to the apostleship by Jesus Christ and God the Father. And, of course, the working of the Holy Spirit communicated that to him. And he said, I have these brethren with me, and we're in unity is what we're saying to you. Uh, under the churches of Galatia, verse 3, grace be to you and peace from God the Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ. He's intending to minister to them. And he says, speaking of Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, 
that he might deliver us from this present evil world according to the will of God and our Father to whom be glory forever and ever. And then he, re- he gives that nice word that we ought to use more. Amen. <laughs> right? So be it. It is so. That's right. That's true. Verse number 6. Now, so we've seen Paul's dutiful greeting, 1 through 5. Now we get into his defense of the gospel. He's going to do that through the entire book. But for chapter 1, we're going to call verses 6 through 11 his defense of the gospel. He immediately begins to deal with the perverting of the gospel, the perversion of it. It's the Bible word that's used, verse 6. I marvel. I marvel, meaning I am, I am surprised. I am shocked at how soon. I marvel that ye are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel, which is not another, but there be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. The word pervert here, according to the Strong's Concordance, means to turn across, that is, to transmute. So to change something from its original intent to a different intent. Okay, To change something from its original intent to another intent. Let me, let me use an illustration. It'll give me an opportunity to preach on this Bible issue again for a minute. There, help me here tonight. Why was this Bible, the King James Bible, originally translated as it was? Why was, I understand the King didn't have a pure motive, but what led to the translation of the Bible into the common tongue during that era of time? You've studied history. William Tyndall, I believe, was one who said that. I want the common plowboy to read and understand what I can read in the original tongue. Meaning, I want the words of God as they are written and were recorded and preserved to this date, and only the learned, only the scholars can read it. I want the plowboy to be able to read it. And so, they went to work, and many of them lost their heads and were stretched on racks and burned at the stake. I read this afternoon of John Knox. I love, bear with me for a minute. He was on a ship as an oarsman being punished by his government for his resistance against the Catholic Church. And a priest came through and had a, a, a painted idol, wooden idol of the Virgin Mary, supposedly, and began to tell them, kiss the mother of God, kiss the mother of God. So when the priest came to Knox, he took that and he said, mother of God, this is nothing but painted wood, more fitted to swim, and he cast it in the ocean. <laughs> That's a different kind of man than we often see today. Men like that gave us a book like this. Today, there are men who are giving us books and saying it's a better version, a better translation. And they work with publishing houses and the World Council of Churches that denies Jesus Christ. You realize the Greek text that gives us our new translations is owned by an apostate movement? You say, where are you going? The original intent of this Bible was to help the common man be able to read it and understand it. Today, in the name of the common man being able to read it, they'll tell about your King James Bible. Well, it's just too hard to understand. So we've got to give you a Bible you can read. And when they do, you say, is it perfect? No, because there's no perfect translation. So what you have to have is a scholar to help you know what the original languages were. You know what they did? They perverted it. They took the original intent where you and I can open it and at an average 8th grade reading level read this book and understand it and we have naysayers, perverters of the Word of God coming along and taking the original intent that God gave us that the common man might read the Bible and know with certainty he's heard from God on the pages of Scripture and in the name of giving you a Bible easier to understand they tell you but you can't because you have to know the original languages because that's where infallibility is at. It's perverting a truth, perverting the word of God. It's, it's, doing the exa- it's taking the intent of godly men and perverting it to change its intent. You with me? There are those, the whole point of the gospel is that you might have peace with God, that you might know you're forgiven, that you might rest in Jesus Christ. And there are those that come along and change it to say, no, 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 you can't. you got to work at it. you got to do this. you got to add this. you got to do this. It's not what Jesus did alone. It's what He did and what you do. And the intent of the gospel is to give you assurance and peace so that you can serve God without fear. And what perverted gospels do is fill your soul with turmoil and doubt. And that's what was taking place in Galatians. You had men coming in and adding to. They weren't denying that Jesus was necessarily who he said he was. 
They changed the message. So let me ask you tonight, just for clarity, if something's going to be perverted, what's the best way to identify that? How many perverted forms of the gospel do you think we have around us today? Every cult, how many cults deny that Jesus existed? My knowledge. Not one, but the Jehovah's Witness take Jesus and they say, oh, yes, he was the son of God, but he wasn't God. And instead of building your confidence in Christ, they turn that and pervert it and say, no, you have to have confidence in yourself. There's only one, one of two ways, only two, one of two things are going to happen if you believe that. If you have a, a so-called gospel that's going to lead you to have confidence in yourself, you're going to have to be deceived and full of pride or filled with fear and defeat. One of the two. And so then what we find is you find the LDS, no, they teach about Jesus. And even Islam teaches about Jesus, says he was a wonderful prophet. All of them say yes, but, and they take a truth and they change its intent. The intent is that you and I might have peace with God, that we might know we're justified, that we might know we're sanctified, that we might be settled and knowing that we've been called out from this world and we're separated unto God through the Lord Jesus Christ, and yet they're perverters of the gospel. So how many of these gospels do we have to study to be able to say, ah, that's a perverted gospel? Just study the truth. So if I ask you tonight, and I hear Jim and Jeff often do this and knock on the door, what is the gospel? That's a good question to be asked. What is the gospel tonight? Number one, what does it mean? One of you young people, what does the gospel mean? Good news. That's right. Good news. So when a gospel is given to you and it's terrifying news, something's wrong. (laughs) The gospel is good news. The gospel is not, yeah, the young man I was talking to in the jail this afternoon. He said, I know what I was brought up in. He said, try this and try this and try this and try this and do this and do this and do this and hopefully you'll make it. He said, that is not what you've taught me, what you preached. And he said, and I've wrestled with that. It's the same young man that I, he said, can I not stay a Catholic and believe what you're preaching as well? And I just asked him, I said, you tell me. And he said, no, can't do. They're not the same message, not the same gospel. Here's why. The other fills you with, well, maybe a little more, maybe a little more. And so the point would be this. You can't study all the false gospels. You've got to know what the gospel is. So first of all, the gospel means... Good news. So wouldn't it be nice, wouldn't it be a blessing if there was a text of Scripture that actually like laid it out? This is the gospel. All right, Bible students, where is it? What's that? 1 Corinthians 15, very good. 1 Corinthians 15, turn there if you would. Paul lays it out abundantly clear, this is the gospel. Very simple, it's not complex. May I say this? If someone starts to give you the gospel, and even in our own minds, we have to guard against making the gospel complex and complicated. It's not. It's simple. It's singular. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1. Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel, which I preached unto you, which also ye received, and wherein ye stand, by which also ye are saved, if ye keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless ye ye have believed in vain... For I delivered unto you, first of all, here he goes, going to tell us the gospel. I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures, and that he was seen of Cephas, then of the twelve. After that, he was seen of above 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain unto this present. But some are fallen asleep. After that, he was seen of James and of all the apostles. And last of all, he was seen of me also, as of one born out of due time. Uh, for I am the least of the apostles, that I am not meet to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace which was bestowed upon me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. And so then... Paul gives us a clear definition of the gospel based on this. What is the gospel? Not everybody wants. (laughs) Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried and 
heroes again. That's it. Hold on, let's do that again. Christ died for our sins. He was buried. He rose again. And that's it. You're going to tell me the gospel is not about me at all. About him. There's no good news about me. I'm a sinner. Well, I'm not now. I'm saved now. By nature, I'm a sinner. That's not good news. How many of you have ever battled a sin because you wanted it to go away? Honestly, I don't want this sin. I'm tired of this sin. I'm going to work at it. And found that that wasn't good news. You, you, you just you work real hard at getting your sin out of your life. You can do that, but the flesh is incapable of producing righteousness. You know what the good news is? The sins we've already been committed have been paid for through his death. And the sin that you have to battle daily in your flesh has already been conquered and can be conquered in you by his life. You know what all of 1 Corinthians 15 is? He's living. He's living. You know why I'm glad he's living? Because he's a living intercessor. The Bible says in 1 John chapter 2, these things have I written unto you, my little children, these things are written unto you, that you sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. What he's saying is this, I have written unto you because you're saved not to sin, but if you sin, you have an advocate. You have someone you've put your trust in who has applied his righteousness to your account, who will defend you before God and will empower you. I am glad that he is able to save to the uttermost. Why is Jesus able to save to the uttermost? You know what save to the uttermost means? Save all the way. I've never in all my ministry until the last two months had somebody say to me, I'm not sure I'm all the way saved. That was their very words. A number of folks that because of the, 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 the church and they've been attending and the background and reading, I don't know where it all came from, but they believe, they said, we're just not sure if we're all the way saved. You know what they're saying? We're not sure if we're saved to the uttermost. Wherefore, he is able also to save them to the uttermost who come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. You know what the good news is tonight? The Savior who died for you lives for you. That's good news. Now, if a person wants to continue to live in sin and just get by with it, then you have to question if they didn't believe in vain. I think it's what Paul's saying. Believing in vain doesn't mean I believed and he didn't save me. It means I didn't really believe and therefore I'm not saved. That's what that's speaking of in 1 Corinthians 15. The gospel is Christ died for your sins. Christ lives to save you from your sins and he is a faithful Savior. And so Paul reminds the Galatians of that. He said, hey, this is the gospel I preached to you. By the way, study the book of Acts. You know what Paul went everywhere preaching? He preached to the Jews. The scriptures teach us of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He came. He died for your sins according to the scriptures. And he raised from the dead just like the scriptures said he was. He is legitimately God's provision for salvation. The gospel is about a person, and that person is Jesus Christ. I remember sitting, it was the very day I sat and witnessed those two young men in the jail so many years ago, almost ten years ago now. It was, I think, nine years ago I witnessed that one of the young men was there today and one of his companions were there. And I remember going in there that day and trying to think, wow, these guys got a background that's a little difficult to deal with. And I felt like the Spirit of God smote me like, what is your problem? Tell them what I can do for them. And on that day I just began to tell them, this is who Christ is and what he can do for you right now. You know how easy it is to give the gospel? It's not about us. It's about him. It's what he did for us. It's what he is doing for us. You know what my security is tonight? The one who died for me is alive. All of 1 Corinthians 15 is about the living Savior. And so tonight Paul says, no, no. These who came along, instead of turning your attention to Christ... They've come along and perverted it. And as we go to the book of Galatians, you'll see they turn the attention of the Galatians from what Christ has done for them to what they are doing for Christ. Should we do for Christ? Yes, but that does not make us righteous. He's turned their attention. Don't misunderstand me. Should we serve Christ? Yes. But the gospel is not about us obtaining righteousness by the works of the law. The righteousness is about us obtaining righteousness by Christ. And therefore, we can fulfill the righteousness of the law by faith in him. And so he begins to deal with the perversion of the gospel, verses 6 and 7. I marvel that you are so soon removed from him that called you 
into the what? The grace of Christ. Help me tonight. Let's just think about this. What again is grace? What is grace? It's receiving blessings and benefits that we have not earned. Unmerited favor. You look through grace and that's a simple definition. You can look at grace active. You can look at grace in the giving of the spiritual gifts, the giving of salvation. It's all grace. It's God's beneficence toward us without us earning that. Paul deals with that in Romans 4. If it's of grace, it cannot be of works because if it's of works, then it's debt. God doesn't owe any of us a place in his presence. But he's graciously provided that we might have that. And so then, he says, somebody's removed you from the grace of Christ unto another gospel. Then he clarifies, which is not another. I'm not, he says, I'm not suggesting there are multiple legitimate gospels. What he's saying is the word another in verse 6 is, it's different than what I preach to you, but it's not different in the sense that there are two gospels. There's only one, verse 7, which is not another, but there be some that do what? Trouble you. We find that same verbiage in Acts chapter 15 where the apostles write to the, the churches that Paul had been preaching to. If you turn over to Acts 15 with me very quickly, I'm going to see if I can round this verse up. I didn't write the reference down. I know it's over here in Acts 15. Verse 24, excuse me, verse 23. Acts 15, 23. Uh, what had happened in Acts 15 is there are some teachers from Jerusalem that showed up in Antioch and they began to teach the, the believers there, that you're not saved unless you get circumcised as well. I mean, you've got to put your trust in Christ, but then you have to keep the law as well. So there was a great debate, as you have heard about and know about. So in verse 23, the judgment that was rendered. By the way, they didn't say, well, we don't know. These are good men, and they believe that you have to get circumcised to be saved. These are good men, and they don't. So, hey, you know, let's just all... Believe what we want to. No, the, the, the apostles said, no, what they're teaching you is wrong. It's not true. Verse 23, and they wrote letters by them after this manner. The apostles and the elders and brethren send greeting unto the brethren which are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia. For as much as we have heard that certain which went out from us, so they'd come out of the church of Jerusalem, certain that which went out from us have done what? troubled you with words, subverting your souls, saying you must be circumcised and keep the law, to whom we gave no such commandment. It seemed good unto us, being assembled with one accord, to send chosen men unto you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men that have hazarded their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. This idea of troubled you means to stir or agitate to royal water, to stir or agitate. So here's people who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ and Him alone and are resting that He has saved them. They're Gentiles. They're uncircumcised. They eat pig. And all of a sudden, these guys come along and say, no, 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 no. You know, we're glad you've believed about who Jesus is. We do too. But you're not actually saved until you get circumcised and start keeping the law. And what the apostles said, that, that, and it troubled them. You know why it troubled them? Because they thought the Lord Jesus had saved them. They thought they were saved by faith in Christ. Then they're told, no, it's your faith in Christ and the righteous deeds of the law that you have to do that save you. And the consequence was it was troubling. It was troubling. Roiled them up and caused turmoil and agitation. Paul uses its exact same word in Galatians chapter 1 when he says, uh, there are those, be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. The word pervert, I mentioned the meaning in Strong's Concordance. It also, from the Webster's 1828 Dictionary, this definition I think is helpful. It means to turn from the truth or propriety or from its proper purpose. To turn from truth, propriety, or from its proper purpose. To distort from its true use or end as to pervert reason by misdirecting it, to pervert the laws by misinterpreting and misapplying them, to pervert justice, to pervert the meaning of an author, to pervert nature, to pervert truth. In our political system today, we see many perverters of our U.S. Constitution. Roe v. Wade is such an example. That we are given freedom of choice, we are given freedom of expression, so what that means is I can murder my baby in the womb, and they've, the intent of the U.S. Constitution was not to give people the right to kill. It was to give people the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. 
So they've taken the text of the Constitution and redirected its goal to fit their end and means. And men do it with Scripture all the time. Grab a scripture and say a, a verse that God intended to give clarity and use it to cause confusion. No, the word of God is not intended to do that, but that's what's going on here. So he deals with the perversion of the gospel in verses 6 and 7. Then verses 8 through 11, he deals with the primacy of the gospel. By that I mean we are judged by what we do with the gospel. The gospel is not judged by the person that preaches it. The preacher is judged by the message he preaches. And so let's read that, verse 8. He said, but though we... Paul says, me, myself, the very person who preached the gospel to you originally, but though we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. Meaning, if the good news, the gospel that comes along and somebody says, this is how you can be saved, and it's different than Christ died for you, was buried and raised again according to the scriptures, it's different than that. What's he say? Let him be what? Accursed. Another term is Maranatha anathema. Let him be accursed. Meaning, write that man off. If he perverts the gospel, if he changes the message of the gospel from the word of God, that Jesus Christ paid for our sins and he lives as the intercessor and mediator, the only and way to God, the high priest. You, you, You have another gospel than that. Let that man be accursed. You know what Paul says? If I show up and I change what I preached to you the first time, I am so certain that what I told you the first time is the very word of God. If I come to you and I change that and modify that and preach a different gospel, let me be accursed. You cut me off. He said, if an angel came and preached it to you, if Gabriel shows up, he doesn't use Gabriel's name, and he preaches to you another gospel than what I preached to you, you know what Paul's saying? The word of God is what's supreme here. It's not about who's preaching. It's not about the oratory skills. It's not about, uh, it has nothing to do with that. He said, me, myself, an angel from heaven, whoever it may be, this gospel is the only message of God's way of salvation. And if it's perverted, let him be accursed. Verse 90 emphasizes it again. As we said before, so say I now again, if any man preach any other gospel unto you than that you have received, let him be accursed. I've heard a lot of times about preachers who preach the word of God with authority. What are they so mad about? Got a question. Is Paul mad? He sounds stirred up. Stirred up. Why? Why is he saying, let a man be accursed? That's strong language. Because he realizes... The eternal destiny of men is what is at stake. This is not about winning an intellectual debate. We are talking about if you receive another gospel. You know, Paul is doing, he is, he's saying, I believe he's, he'll say in Galatians, I'm worried about you folks. That's paraphrasing. Meaning, I thought you sincerely believed what I preached to you, but your willingness to entertain another gospel has got me concerned. Why? Because if you believe something other than the gospel of Jesus Christ, it's going to condemn you. Who authors perverted gospels? Our adversary. He goes about seeking whom he may devour. How does Satan devour people? Help me here. What is his tool that he uses to devour people? What I hear? Lies. And those lies are generally half-truths. He does. He tells lies about God. He tells lies to you about you. He tells lies about sin. He tells lies about the gospel. His primary tool for devouring people is lies. So it is vital that we know the truth. What is the gospel? Jesus Christ died for our sins according to the... So let me ask you this. What if you can undercut the scriptures? What if you can get somebody to doubt the scriptures? then how can you be sure of the gospel? You know what? I'm certain because of Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53 and a host of other texts like that, there is absolutely no conflict between the New Testament and the Old. They are in perfect harmony. We believe what we believe because God put it for us in the Scriptures. And you know what Paul is saying? My judge is not 
It's not you. It's not him. It's not them. I am to be judged by what I preach. Meaning the very word of God is what is the determination. He said, you know what he's telling the Galatians? Don't prefer people over principle. Don't prefer people over principle. Don't prefer personality over principle. The gospel is the gospel. And when someone changes it, don't curse the gospel. Let the preacher that changed it be accursed. Whether it be an angel or me or anybody else. We're saying the gospel is prime. It is to be preeminent. And therefore, someone says, Oh, I just couldn't quit listening to him. He's been my favorite preacher for years. He's preaching a false gospel. I don't care how well he played the piano. I don't care if you listened to him when he, was, when, you were, when he was 35. There are men who at one point in time preached the gospel pure and simple. And over time, their true colors came out. And all of a sudden, they start preaching a variant of the gospel. You know what you need to do at that point? I don't care if you have $3,500 invested in his ministry, burn everything he's got. Isn't that what he's saying? Let him be accursed. If he's changed the gospel, he's in trouble with God. You don't want to get in trouble with him. Amen? And so then, prefer truth and, and principle over personalities and people. Verse 9, as we said before, so say I now again, if any man preach any other gospel unto you than that you have received, let him be accursed. For do I now persuade men or God? Paul said, who am I out here trying to persuade? Am I trying to, to get God to agree with me or get men to agree with God? Eh, we know the answer to that. And then he says this, or do I seek to please men? You've read anything about the Apostle Paul, you know the answer to that question. I think if you've read these first few verses, you should have your answer. <laughs> he wasn't out to please men. And he goes on to explain. Do I, am I, if I get, uh, do I seek to please men? For if I yet pleased men, I should not be the servant of Christ. If I was about pleasing men, I would have never left the minute, what I was doing before. But in order to please Christ, I gave all that up, and it didn't please men. <laughs> Verse 11, but I certify you, I certify you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached of me is not after men. He said, the gospel I'm preaching to you is not a man's message trying to get God to put his stamp of approval on it. It is God's message. Now, church tonight, if we're going to go forward grounded, settled, and fruitful, we cannot get we cannot get caught up in a day where men focus on men's messages. We need to know what is of Christ. And that starts with the gospel, the good news. And realize, you know what? The gospel is the gospel, and we need the mind of Christ. What Paul was saying, I am so certain that what I preach to you is what God gave, that if I change it, you cut me off. Now, you know what? Isn't that the way it ought to be? We're to be loyal to the Savior. We're to be loyal to his word. We'll stop there for tonight. We've dealt with Paul's beautiful greeting, verse 1 through 5, his defense of the gospel, verses 6 to 11, verses 12 through 24, we'll deal with Paul's demonstration of the gospel. You know what he's going to do? Verse 12, he's going to start giving his own personal testimony. Here's who I was, and here's who I am, and here's who gets the glory for it. That's what he's going to do in verses 12 through 24. You know what our testimony should be? Nothing more but a consistent demonstration of the power of the gospel, the ability of the living Son of God to save a soul and change their life. By the way, all we have to do to be that testimony is trust him. He'll do the changing. Mm-hmm.